ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Creating Structure podcast. Great to have you. Thanks for listening. I'm very honored and pleased to have my guest this podcast session, Jeff Heyman with Benson, Vice President. Jeff, welcome to the show. John, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me as well. It's a privilege. Thanks. Yeah. I think the last time we actually had a conversation might have been the BEC last year in Nashville. Uh, I think we've had a couple of conversations over the phone since then, but yeah, you're probably right, at least in person. So yeah, I, as I was mentioning to you before we got on, you're you're looking professorial with your very with your natty beard and oh, thank you. You know, I, I feel like I probably should be on my best behavior now since I'm being you know I'm in, I'm in class here at the moment. Uh yeah, I got you. Well, you know, not we haven't gone video yet on the podcast, but we are getting okay. video editing software here soon, and we will be going YouTube with all the prior episodes. So that'll okay. come up. So, Jeff, um, it's great to have you. Um, as we typically do, why don't you tell everybody where you're from, brief background, where you work, and what, what's your educational background? Give us an sure. introduction. Yeah, thanks, John. So, yeah, I, my, my hometown is Buffalo, New York. I was born and raised there, and it was a great place to grow up. Um, in the, in the, you know, late sixties and seventies. Um, I went to college in your neck of the woods at Case West Reserve University in Cleveland. And, um, I actually did not graduate from Case. My, my, I, I came home from college after my, after my senior, my fall, my fall semester, my senior year. And I was, I was on the generously on the five-year plan at that point. And, and my father got sick and passed away. So I actually stayed, stayed, stayed home, ended up Ended up graduating uh, from the University of Buffalo. Um, and then that, I was actually um, just interesting. I was coaching football at a small Jesuit college, Canisius College, mm -hmm. deciding what I want to do with my life when I grew up, which mm -hmm. I'm still deciding on. But um, uh, <laughs> ended up answering an ad for an architectural glass position in Jamestown, New York. And that was Falconer Glass Industries. And lo and behold, they, they, they decided to hire me. So I, I put the coaching career on hold and, uh, and moved down from Buffalo about 90 miles to Jamestown, not knowing a darn thing about, about anything. But uh, so that's sort of how I got started in, uh, in, in glass and facades. And then, uh, you know, went from one project, you know, we moved to Chicago as my first position with Faulkner as sort of a, just a, a sales rep and, and then sort of, uh, took a different job that had, uh, and they had transferred me to New York city from, from Chicago. And then, uh, the month I got out there, they fired me. They had fired my boss and then fired me. Oh my. So I, I had, I had two job offers. I had, I had a job. I, I could have moved back to Chicago with guardian glass or I stay in New York. I was committed to staying in New York. Um, so I had a job with, um, I, 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 well, I had a job with Cal Wall for a year and then, and then uh, ended up working in, and so then I got a call from a headhunter to, for, a pro, for a job with Flower City Architectural Metals, which, you know, really introduced me, kind of, my, I migrated from sort of a glass-focused position into more of a facade-engineered products focus, but I always liked the engineering, engineer side of the, of the business anyway. So, um, uh and from there, it was just, you know, my career took off. And um, uh, unfortunately, I was, you know, I was there near the end of Flower City, but I had left before that to um, uh, sort of start my own thing with a few guys that 
was 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 interesting and a challenge. Um, ultimately, that didn't work out. But but by doing that, I ended up um, I had met Lou Niles when I was when we, I was at Flower City. We actually were competing for a project in the Philippines, and I actually met him in Manila once. And uh, and some people from Flower City had gone to work at Benson, and um, so we we contacted each other as when I was with this small this smaller contracting firm. I contacted Lou about an opportunity that had presented itself and we, uh, we struck up a, a relationship, a friendship. And then from there, um, ended up going to work for, for Benson and opened up sort of pioneered the, the Eastern region for them, you know, uh, not to give, not to belabor too much, but, but I, I had asked Lou why I had never done any work in New York. And he said, cause I haven't wanted to, which is a great <laughs> answer. Yeah. <laughs> And to this day, it's probably pretty a, a fairly astute answer. But uh, uh, he said, "I'll tell you what: if we can get together, I'll take I'll take the curtain wall as far as the Lincoln Tunnel." And I Is said, right? "Okay, I'll take it the rest of the way." Is and that, that right? Sort of, that was sort of the first project that we did, and then I ended up working for for Benson, and then um, and then uh, about six years ago, as as the company was sold to uh, to MyTech, and and as um, as as the guys had, you know, guys like Lou who passed away last year, for those who don't know it, but Lou and some other guys were looking at their retirement and my tech had asked, asked me then at that point to what I consider moving from New York to, uh, to Portland to help, uh, help take on a more national leadership position. So I've been, I've been here in the great Northwest now, almost five years. It seems like yesterday. It does. So that's sort of my career in a quick nutshell. That's, Man, we've got enough content for a whole podcast just from that. And I know we have a lot of ground to cover, but I'd like to unpack the timeline a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. So Faulkner, that was a, was that a glass fabricator? Yeah. So it's interesting. So that was, you know, that was the early eighties. So that was before that was, you know, coated glass had just come on the market, but low E yeah. was not quite there yet. Yeah. The, um, you know, tempering was still the the primary sort of revenue for, for a lot of, a lot of people, but Faulkner, was a mirror manufacturer had started as a family business to really support what was a furniture business in in that southwest corner of New York State, which a lot of a lot of Swedish immigrants had had uh, moved over, and you know similar to the way that the mirror business grew up in North Carolina around the furniture business, right? Yeah. And then from there, the the Turner family, and and, and we should touch on. I want to. I actually, if we get a chance, I want to touch on some people that have influenced me because. Sure. There's there's been a thread that I that I that I've thought about before. But but anyway, but the, the Turner family sort of, you know, moved and expanded from being a, a, a mirror manufacturer to tempering and then laminating and then insulating. So they were sort of a full service business, but they were it was right. But I, 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 I when I started with them, coated products were just coming on the market. And that's and then ultimately, I think that was probably you know, that sort of regional dem demise, but they were, and distributors were still a big thing. So they were selling truckloads of mirrors and truckload of, of laminated billet to, you know, guys like boss glass and Marvin glass in Chicago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that whole era, but, but I think, but, you know, that was in the eighties, but by the time the nineties came around that, that era had sort of, you know, been bypassed and, 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 you know, uh, things were much different. But uh, that's where I started. And um, uh, but I've always had I was going to say, I, you know, so Dick Turner was the president of the company. The Turner family owned the business. 
And, you know, through my career, I've always had somebody that saw something in me. God, God knows what it was sometimes, but so, you know, they, but I had some great people that really, really showed me how to show me how to do things the right way, the proper way. And yeah. they, and, you know, three in particular and, and all three were, were sort of iconic and, and also great, great gentlemen. And so that's a, been a big part of, of, uh, of who I, who I am. And I actually try to remember that as I'm now, you know, getting some more than a few gray hairs on my head. Yeah. So, um, we can come back to the timeline. I've got more questions, but why don't you go ahead and you want to tell us who those influences influencers yeah, or Dick, Dick Turner so, you know, was one. Uh, so I mentioned Dick Turner and I, you know, I haven't, I haven't really Dick, I haven't, you know, been passed away for a long time now, but it was a real gentleman. And, you know, I, the, the opportunity I had to spend time with him and travel with him, was great. He, he, he wants, um, he had developed this new mirror backing, right. And, you know, he was big in selling mirrors in Florida where the salt and the is, is really tough. And we had a, we had a big rep firm down there that sold a tremendous amount of mirrors. And he went, he thought that we were not, he didn't have as much market share on long Island as, as, as he thought. So I'm still working through this sort of trainee program. I'm mm -hmm. probably 24 years old and he says, I want you to go to Long Island for two weeks. He gives me this box full of three by three mirror samples. He says, here's a list of everybody on Long Island, of every glass company. Long Island. I want you to go to every glass company on Long Island and tell them about this mirror product and why they should be buying mirrors either from us or through one of our distributors. I love it. So I jump in the car, <laughs> you know, I get a credit card, a car and a, and a box full of mirrors. Right. And two <laughs> weeks worth of two weeks worth of clothes and go drive to Long Island from from, you know, upstate New York or western New York and knocked on every door, got lost. I think my car broke down once or twice. Right. Whatever. And I would I look back on that. I'm like it was a miserable two weeks, but it really wasn't a miserable two weeks. It was the greatest two weeks because it, it made me do things and, and it taught me so much about just interacting with people and, yeah. you know, giving, giving me the space to sort of make mistakes, right. Or, or to figure out what I had to say or what I had to do. So that was, that was sort of a fun little thing. I was, I was thinking about getting ready for the podcast today. And then, um, and then when I started at flower city, the same thing, the very first day I started there, Oscar Drucker, yeah. who was just this great figure and Oscar was, and Oscar says, I want you to sit in on it. And Oscar had this whiny voice. He's, I want you to sit in on every sales meeting we have so you understand the business as fast as you can. Okay, I love Oscar. it. So, you know, so he let, so, you know, I'm sitting there. I don't know. I don't know anything really. And, and I'm sitting in, he's asking me questions. What do I think? And then, um, you know, then just going to meetings with him and he was so well-respected in the, in the contracting community in, in New York, but, but Oscar would get on a roll at these at these meetings, and, and uh, Mike Russo, who's president of SPS down in down in Cary, North Carolina, still a yeah. good friend. And Mike and I were like our contemporaries, and we were both, you know, in our early 30s at the time. And we would go to the meetings with Oscar, and after the meetings, Mike would come in my office and he says, "How'd it go?" And I said, "He kicked me twice and nudged me in his elbow three times." Says, yeah, I got four kicks and a nudge, <laughs> <one. laughs> telling us to shut up. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I was going to ask if you knew Mike because um, yeah, Mike would have been young at the time. What year was that at Flower City? Was this mid so late eighties? I, I was at Flower City from nineteen ninety 
Got you. And so Mike, so Mike had just, John Stevens was the, was the head of sales and John was looking to retire. And Mike, Mike and I are about the same age, but Mike had, Mike had started. So they had, so Mike was moving into John's role and Mike needed somebody to replace him. So Mike hired me. So Mike and so Mike, oh, Mike that's was good. technically my boss. And then when Mike became president, yeah. And then after Oscar left, Mike actually got tapped to be the president. And then I I moved I moved in some other roles. But Mike and Mike and I we used to have a lot of fun together. Um, but but in New York, but I, so we and I know we were both very much uh, we learned a lot from Oscar. And then yeah. obviously, and then and then Lou, you know, Lou, Lou was really, you know, very, very influential in my career and always always, you know, when I went to him and I said, I think you needed to open up an office in, in New York and I should be the one to open it for you. Yeah. He said, okay. He said, send me a business plan and come out and see me when you're ready. And I remember, you know, saying, I sent him, sending him something and, and going out there and he, he looked at it and talked about it one Saturday morning for a couple hours. And he said, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll call you next week. And, uh, call me up and he says, okay, let's do it. And, uh, and just, you know, the opportunity to spend time with him, travel with him, um, see the way people, you know, just um, he used silence very well, he, Did he? which is something I'm still trying to learn to this day. But uh, uh, he used silence very well. He he exuded, you know, integrity is a word that's used a lot. But I think with with Lou. um he exuded integrity. And I think that was, that was his key. I think everyone that he, that he did business with just sensed that, that he was going to, he was going to, you know, that he was, wasn't a pushover, but that he was going to, he was going to treat, treat them fairly and, and he should be treated fairly as well. And, um, you know, we had some great times together and, you know, helped, helped, helped to take Benson from what was, you know, they were, they had never done any work in the East and we had, you know, I, I mean, I had something to do with it, but obviously it was a great company. So the opportunity to sort of start in New York and try to get some work. And then, you know, one project leads to another project, you know, New York times building. And then yeah, obviously, you know, I guess the crowning jewel would have been freedom tower, you know, sure. that we're able to secure and, you know, so tower one and tower four. And so, you know, very, you know, I think, I think everybody in our industry is always, proud of, you know, the fact that we can look at something, it's very tangible, right? Yeah. You know, the projects that you've worked on, John. So I think that's the thing. It's just, we're, you know, we work on stuff that's enduring and it, and it, and it visible, it, it's visible and it's tangible and it's, and it's impactful on people and on yeah. communities, you know, and so skylines. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very humanistic though. Right. I mean, the idea that what we're doing is, I mean, architecture is, Somebody told me once architecture is probably the most humanistic of all the art forms because we interact with it so, so much. I mean, we, I love artwork and there's some art behind me and some stuff, but yeah. you know, the whole idea of, of the space that we, that we, you know, uh, exist in is, is constant. So uh, yeah, you know, building, building nice buildings, being involved in, in great structures is for a guy who really doesn't have a, a formal engineering training or architectural training. Um, it's pretty exciting for me. I think, you know, as you say that architecture, that art form, I, I see it as multidimensional layers of it's, it's poetry and prose. It's, it's a yep. word picture. 
it's a it's an idea in someone's mind that's then translated into physical reality. We could talk a long time about that. I yeah. I, I do have a ton of respect for the for that and the aesthetic nature of our work. You know, I, I want to ask you about Lou because I know Lou had a big impact on you, and um, you you talked about how he used silence well. How how did he use silence? How did he use the pause? Was that in negotiations or how did he time that? I, I, you know, he was, he was good at it, but it wasn't so much the silence. It was, you know, when somebody's expecting you to go up there and start singing and dancing and, and, and you're not, then, um, then, it, then it creates a little bit of tension. Right. Yes. And the other thing I, I think with, I think one of the, one of the things that like a little, I thought about this. If, if you know that a moment's going to be tense, the person who knows it first probably has a little bit of an advantage. Yeah. Right. So I think sometimes I mean, whether he, he knew this or whether he, he never articulated this to me, but I sort of got the sense that I think sometimes he knew it was going to be tense. So he figured if I know it's tense, then I've got the, then I've got at least the advantage in, in, in how it goes. So, um, yeah, like I say, I, 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 I've recognized the lesson, but I haven't learned it very well. Well, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. The, but that is a very interesting psychology of that whole thing. You know, the, the person who pauses long enough to let the other person speak first, play their card first, they have the upper hand. You know, there's yeah. a statement in negotiation. Chris Voss talks about it, that, that master negotiator. He said, you know, there's a, th- there's a fool in every negotiation. And if you don't know which one is the fool, you're the fool. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mark, I think, I think there's a quote similar to that a little bit more folksier by Mark Twain. I think it's Mark Twain who says better to remain silent and thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. a prop, yeah. there's a proverb that says, um, basically, um, the same thing that right. the yeah, person that proverb. the person yeah. that keeps their no Mark Twain had it, but the person that keeps their okay. mouth shut. I think it's when words are when when words are many, something to that effect. Okay. Um, so yeah. you talked about Dick and you talked about shout out to Mike Russo with with SPS. Yeah. They're they're a customer as well. We actually have a guy on staff from Flower City. He was at Johnson City, Tennessee, oh, David, David Tamplin. He was okay, an yeah. architectural design guy. And right. uh, he works for us. So there's still some there's still some legacy. Well, there's a and, lot of us. We're, we're still out there. there. It's going to take a while to get us out of the system. Well, same yeah. with me. I'm, I'm an ex-PPG guy. So yeah. you were selling yeah. for Faulkner Glass and we were yeah. buying glass from Ford City. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's back in the day. So um, you mentioned just quick digression. You mentioned you were coaching football. Did you play football in college or high school? I or did. What? I played at Case West Reserve. I was, uh, you know, I'm not the biggest guy in the world, for those of you who know me, but, but I was... Like I like to say, I'm not, I'm, I'm not big, but I'm also slow. Um, but, uh, <laughs> no, but I, I was, I was okay. I was pretty good. I actually ended up at case because I, I, I wanted to, I thought I was going to be a doctor and I also wanted to play division three football. And that was sort of the best, best mix yeah. for me. So it was fun. Um, and what I, do, position? I grew up, I grew up, I was a defensive back and a running okay. back in, in, in high school, but in college I played defensive back, but um, for a school, for a team that wasn't very good, they have a good, they have a good program now for at, at the division three level. When, when I was there, we were, we were miserable, but, um, 
uh, it was fun. And I've, you know, I've been a big kind of grew up in a very jockey family. And so, okay. You know, I've been playing sports since I, you know, I've been kicking a ball or chasing a ball since I, since I could walk. So, yeah. yeah. And still do. That's good. I didn't know that about you. So when you were, yeah. so you started at Benson then like in the late nineties, is that right? So I, 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 I started, I started in a relationship with, with Benson. We were actually working together um, with my own company uh, around 99, 2000. And then I actually came over to work for Benson in, in it was October of 2004. So Talk, it's been. Okay. Yeah. Talk to me about your own thing. What, what was that? What, every, um, everybody I've talked to. It was an opportunity. It, it's, it's actually, um, you know, I've, I've got a, I had a friend, an older friend who used to say, if you're a good person and you're doing things for the, for the right reasons and not, he says, there's, there's, there's few bad decisions, you know, there might be better decisions. So in that case, leaving, leaving at the time that I did flower city and going to work for the, with these two guys, and I'm not going to mention their name, they're still in the business, um, was probably not the best decision I made, but, it led to me being at Benson. Right. So in some ways, yeah. like, and I think that's a, that's a, I try to, I try to teach my, I have, I have two sons in their twenties and um, you know, they, they want to plan their lives out, and, you know, and, and, and I sort of like say, you can make all the plans you want, but you know, there's going to be things that are going to derail you or sidetrack you or, or, you know, there's going to be things that come up and you just, as long as you, as long as you have, as long as you're doing things for the right reason, it, it'll all work out in the, in the end. There'll be, there'll be days or years that aren't as good as others, but, but it'll yeah. tend to work out. But what, what that taught me though, is it, I, I sort of went from being more of the, just a pure business development guy to really having to run a business mm-hmm. and also running a contracting business and also running a contracting business in New York. Yeah. Which tough isn't so place. Easy. No, you know, the unions and, and, and a lot going on. So um, it didn't kill me. You know, mm-hmm. like like Nietzsche, it didn't kill me; just made me stronger. Right. It gave me some good perspective, and uh, and again, it, it it led me to to associate myself with with you know with Benson, and so that and you know I've been at Benson what since you know been associated with Benson for twenty some odd years now, so it's been a great been a great uh, experience. Yeah, but that was part of your journey having this yep. gig this your own gig. And a lot of the folks we've talked to on the podcast have had a similar experience, you know, a a transition or started their own business. Um, uh, I have a question in the entomology, the history then on Benson. Um, When you opened up the office in New York and they were on the West Coast, were those bookends the things that took Benson national? Was that the start of it? Or did they just stick to the coasts? No. So, you know, one of the things that um, I think the, the organization and we still today, we really adhere to trying to be very disciplined about the work that we take on. So, um, but Benson started as a regional glazer in Portland, Oregon in, you know, 19, 1926. Okay. So they had been around for a long time. Right. And, and, you know, if you look longevity in, in our industry is, you know, there's, there's a handful of guys that are, you know, like, I you know there's a handful of companies that, that are, but there's a lot that, aren't around any longer, right? You know, we're in a, we're in a volatile business, but Benson was primarily a regional company. Mm-hmm. Um, Lou, I think started doing some work 
in Asia before most of the most of the American companies did. Yeah, maybe with the exception of couples. Um, and then on occasion, and I think similar to Flower City, on occasion an opportunity would present itself where you know you'd go out of town and do something. So, you know, uh, in fact, when I was at Flower City, Benson beat beat us on the Alcoa project in Pittsburgh. I remember. Oh. I remember. Losing, I know the job that to Benson, right? Yeah. I also remember beating Benson on the Bauchum loan project in Rochester, New York. And that had to be, you know, early, early nineties, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so every once in a while we bump heads um, and every once in a while flower city would go out West and do a project too. Um, Chris Merkel, who's a friend of mine who you know, was at Enclose. Chris, ran, I know Chris. Yeah. Chris ran, um, um, uh, Chris ran library, li- it was called library square. It's changed names a hundred times, but you know, the project in LA, that was like the one job in LA that, that, that flower city got. So, you know, Chris, Chris ran out there when he was a, and Chris and I were about the same age. So he was a young guy too. Uh, we're out, was out there running that project for a while. Um, but to answer your question, uh, John, so yeah, I think when, when when Lou made the decision to open the office in New York, that was sort of him saying, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna be here a while. We're gonna we're gonna make we're gonna make this work, and we're still there. And you know we're uh, we, uh, you know we're still chasing some some major work, and we're also doing some work in Boston. We've had a relationship um, in Washington D.C. with um, with TSI for a while, so we've done some work with TSI TSI on occasion. We're still yeah, we still speak to them when something comes up that we think makes sense. Good folks to collaborate on. Yeah, good folks too. Um, yeah, Vic and Peter and Vic Thomas and, and Vic and crew. Lou were contemporaries, right? And Vic and so Vic and Lou were actually contemporaries and worked together. I thought in Washington D.C. for PPG. I so thought they're, they're, so. so there, there you go. It goes back. Yeah, yeah. So the contract lazing division at PPG. Vic is also a gentleman, and yes, he is. Peter and all, I, we know those guys and yeah. uh, I yeah. have a lot of respect for Vic. Well, it's a small business, right? It is. And I guess if you get, if you get as much years on us, John, as you and I do, you, it, it, uh, yeah. it gets even smaller sometimes. Yeah. So we're talking about Vic Cornelia, if the audience yes. isn't following us. So your work at Benson as a VP, what, what are you VP of and what does that work entail? Sure. So um, as, as I'm my Basically, we've we've uh, all of estimating all of the business development and design actually, and so much of design is you know part of design assistance, design build now. That that well, five years ago we sort of we sort of made the decision to to sort of take the pure design portion out of the the out of engineering. I mean, it, we still collaborate, but the the designers were so attached to the to the pre-construction sales effort and then also shepherding the project from through you know this the, through the the design assist or design build or integrated product delivery whatever whatever term you want to use whether it's a term or whether it's a contract uh yeah right language right well they said. Get mixed. but but we decided to do that and so all of that sort of rolls up to me and additionally um uh, you know, as we were acquired um, now eight years ago by MyTech, you know, MyTech's a really great parent. And so there's some things happening um, that will come out. You know, there's some things that we've been looking at as far as MyTech in general. And so, uh, you know, I have some additional responsibilities from time to time with some sister organizations 
um, as we try to, um, as we, as, as my tech um, moves from being uh, primarily a holding company to being an operating business and trying to find commonality between some of their businesses, especially on the commercial side of their business, where we can leverage um, our resources, our, our network, our financial strength to really impact um, the built environment. And, and primarily that is with prefabrication. So that's a big push. And obviously Benson being at the forefront of unitized curtain wall, you know, um, we, we, we've been, we've been obviously very keen on prefabrication for a long time. So some of the, some of the DNA that we have is, is, is helpful as we look at other opportunities and other forms um, of the building and, and, and a prefabric, you know, looking at it in prefabrication and, and uh, modular construction. That was going to be my question. So you're, are, are you seeing more, more of a move towards opaque systems and other forms of exterior cladding or even just structural and architectural systems in general being prefabricated and modularized? Yeah, I mean, that's been, a, obviously, it's been a lot of conversation in construction over the last few years, and I think it's actually gaining huge uh, momentum here. But, um, you know, there's a couple of things you said that we can talk about. Clearly, um, energy code is putting tension between transparent and opaque areas, right? Yeah. So if you look at opaque areas, what, you know, curtain wall can be opaque, but other systems can be opaque as well. You know, and we've just come out with a product um, that, you know, is, is called One Wall. And, and it's the first time we've actually, well, first time in a long time that we've actually looked, come out with a product. You know, we've always said we're a custom curtain wall company that will, you know, design, build a suit. Mm -hmm. This is sort of a product idea that, again, it's not the, we're not, we're not, we're not pioneering it. We think we've maybe improved on it, but, but the, but the genesis of it was if we're seeing a whole bunch of opaque areas and those opaque areas are rain screens and those rain screens are all built in situ and all that, and all that coordination is a, is a, is really difficult between fenestration oh, yeah. and, 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 and all that. And, and if, and if our customers want us to do that work anyway, and they're unhappy with the way it's being built right now, yeah, can we improve on it? You know, because obviously you've got the sort of the mega panel idea that you know is is fairly mature in the east, not as mature in the west right now. But um, so we've just come out with that, and that's that's one response to to some of those some of those challenges that builders are facing, but. The other challenge we have, you know, we've all seen the um, people, you know, people are not joining the trades. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lack of skilled workers. Um, I think there's a general acknowledgement that, you know, anything that can be done in an industrialized environment, in a controlled environment, should be of equal or greater quality than what, what gets done in the field. Yeah. Um, so all those things are playing a role not only for what we're looking at as a company at Benson, but also what, what our, what our parent company, MyTech is looking at as well. And they're in their sort of the, on their commercial side of some of the things they're doing. So we're, we've been involved with some corporations looking at uh, ways to ways to speed delivery methods to get buildings up for distribution centers and other things. Mm -hmm. Some things I can't talk about, but sure. But I think in general, um, 
you know, that whole emphasis has a lot of good ideas. I think, I think the idea is good. I think the execution is what we're all lacking right now. Mm -hmm. uh, us, us, and we're trying to improve on the execution as fast as we can so that it becomes more viable. But, yeah. you know, like with any big change, there's always, um, there's always pushback. There's always learning curve. So it's, it's challenging, but it's a lot of fun right now. Jeff, that's a great topic. Is one wall a curtain wall system or a wall concept, a delivery yeah. concept? Well, I mean, in the technical terms right now, we've, we've got our, the first version hangs off the slab. So in the strict terms of what a curtain wall is, it's, yeah. it's bypassing the slab and interlocking just like a curtain wall. So what, mm -hmm. we, what I, I guess the, the elevator pitch would be, it's a, it's a rain screen cladding system um, that uses curtain wall technology to, as, as weathering and as, as, and to interlock the panels, you know, if sure. we're sitting slab to slab, we still have to deal with how do we handle the soft joint and the mm -hmm. movement and how do we, how do we handle the tolerances? So the one wall really, really is, is using the same Benson sort of movement and male, female interlocking mullion technology as our curtain wall would be. But, but the infill is, is cold form steel sheathing, uh, and, and whatever uh, cladding system some, an architect may, may want. Mm -hmm. And again, we think we've improved on some things. We've got a thermally broken carrier system instead of just using Z-Gertz. Um, so there's some things that we can do that we think are exciting, um, but we're, you know, we're, it's early and it's in, in it's, in it's development, but we're excited about the opportunities. Yeah, that's great. I, as a curtain wall guy myself, I know I've engineered, helped design an engineer with some other customers that uh, maybe it's not the same, but a similar concept where, well, if we can use, you know, split mullions vertically and horizontally, why, why can't we surround the panel wall or yep. the, the UHPC or the stone? And why can't we pick that and hang it and, and tie a perimeter extrusion to it that's sealed? So those transitions become easier, right? Well, that's what we think we've solved uh -huh. right now. Um, right now, some of it is, 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 is what the art, the, the, the structure of it limits the architecture a little bit. So I'm, sure. I'm actually, I'm, I'm probably, I'm actually, it's one of the things I didn't think about totally. And now I, now I kind of realize it. And then the other thing really has to do with, um, I think with any large format product, you look at, you know, shipping and logistics becomes the other issue. Right. Uh, so, yes. um, so, uh, uh, sometimes the site logistics don't just don't permit it, um, because of, of things that happen and because of, because of the way, and some of that is, is just getting our customers, whether they're the client or whether they're the general contractor, think about building their, their site a little differently, sequencing things a little differently, but that's, so it's easier if you can talk about that up front, right? It's it's hard to do that if they're already six months down the, or a year down the road and they say, hey, this is a great product, this might work, but we've got all this all this stuff already in the in, already done. So yeah. Um, you know, when you mentioned logistics, uh I got so many questions and topics here. But um I mean, this is not an ad for Benson. This is my objective view. The first, yeah. the first time I heard about more inside information about Benson, I had a customer 
in a Pacific time zone. And this, this particular person said, well, I've got to compete in part against Benson. And frankly, they have supply chain logistics that are about 10 or 15 years ahead of mine minimum. And then he talked about Asia and he talked about all these things. I looked at a job um, for you guys a couple of years ago in Boston. And I remember saying to you, Jeff, there might be one other glazing company in North America, maybe that could handle the supply chain logistics. Do you, do you think that that's a, a unique selling proposition of Benson is the capability and supply chain and logistics and, and all of that? Well, I think we, I think we have, we can tap into that and I think we've been able to manage it before. So I think we give clients uh, some confidence that, that, it, that we, we can handle it, you know, and, and it really is, it does amaze you know, we're on Zoom these days, right? But it's amazing that I can mm-hmm. be on the call with somebody in Europe at, at 7 a.m. Pacific time, which is 4 p.m. Germany time, let's say. And then I'm, I'm talking to somebody in New York, you know, obviously it's noontime there. And then I might finish the day with a call in Asia because mm-hmm. Asia's coming to work at four or five in, the, in, in my time in the afternoon. And, and I'm not saying that happens every day, but I can tell you over the last four or five months, that's probably happened 20 times where I started the day talking to somebody in Europe, yeah. finished the day talking to somebody in Asia. Amazing. And, I mean, that, and that's happened for a number of years with Benson because we've had some, but, but our supply chain really though is, is a more than, more than where we're sourcing from in general. And I, is that we, we take our supply chain very seriously because, because ultimately, um, Ultimately, whether whether you're a product supplier or a contractor, you're ultimately going to be judged by well, two things: quality and schedule. Okay, but schedule's super, super well. So and so both 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 impact the supply chain, right? But but managing our schedule, you know, as we get into these big projects where there, there's so many things going on, um, you know, one hiccup in your supply chain has a yeah. ripple effect, yeah. especially especially in facades, right? Because you know we're the when whether you're doing it as a stick or whether it's a unit or whether a rain screen, you know, we're the third or fourth people on the site, but there's 15 people behind us. Right? Yeah. So, and you know, you can't do much without the building weathered in beyond, beyond, beyond that. So there's, it's so critical um, to have it, to have your supply chain, right? So our supply chain partners, whether they're, whether they're, you know, down the road here in Portland, we have a, you know, we have a great guy from miscellaneous parts right down the road here, but, mm-hmm. or whether we're sourcing aluminum in Korea um, or glass in, 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 in Europe, it's so critical to understand their strengths, their weaknesses, try not to overburden them with things that, that, that tax them, understand where their, what their best core competencies are. And then, develop relationships with them so you can, so you can speak to them. And, and if there are problems, head them off as quickly as possible and, and get it to get it there. I think to answer your question, yeah, do we, do we do it really well? I think we do do it well. I mean, clearly, clearly on these big mega projects that a Benson and, and, you know, are the other similar competitors are looking at, they're, they're dealing with the same challenges because yeah. we're dealing with international architects, dealing with international companies, um, so they're dealing with the same, the same things, but I think, I think when it comes down to the more regional level, if we're competing with a, a, a good regional contractor, we may have a slight advantage there. That's good. Um, <clears throat> while you're talking about that, I I'm thinking of, um, if this is a, if you have a 
thought about this, um, you know, like Simon Sinek's why concept, like, do you have a purpose and motivation, like a why both personally and corporately? And if, and if you do like, what's the hardest part of communicating your message to your customers, your constituents, those questions go together. Yeah. So on the personal, on the personal level, the why, you mean just why do I like what I do or why do I do what I do? Yeah, what's your, what's your purpose and motive beyond just, I like to, I like to make a paycheck. Yeah. Well, I have really found that I, I really love solving people's problems. Um, okay. Or, or being part of that. And, um, and I also love, I also love to see things that I've, I love this. I love to be introduced to a project that's schematic and being able to point to it, you know, seven years later and say, mm-hmm. and I remember when that was just on a piece of paper that goes back to what you were saying earlier, you know, mm-hmm. about that. Um, I, we did a, we did a focus study when I moved out here because we were doing some rebranding. And I think one of the things that really runs through, um, our organization and that it, I think it, and it transcends, you know, many, many generations now is, is, and I, I truly believe this. Um, and I, and I know the decisions that we make, we're, we're always looking at the, the quality aspect of it. And that, and that really is the, the, and, and it doesn't mean, look, we, look, we know we're competing in a rough and tough business. And so we have to, we have to find ways to compete and whether that's, you know, but, but, we don't compromise if we think something that we're going to do is going to create a problem down the road, you know, for the, for the building in, you know, once it's in service or for somebody in the field. And so I think that's really the main driver of what, of what everybody at, in our organization does. And I think that's just part of who we are as a culture and, and it's transcended the transition from, from the management team that Lou had to the management team now that Lance Howard runs, mm-hmm. which I'm fortunate enough to be a part of. That's good. That's great. Um, is there a difference between um, your role in managing a private in a private company versus a public company environment? I'm, a lot of our audience may be interested in that. We're, our, our industry is dominated by private companies, but there are yeah. certainly a, a public companies. What, what's the difference there? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, if you go back to the three gentlemen that I that I referenced as my role models, all three were were either in a private for the most part or or family business, right? So, clearly, if you're in a private business, you can, you know, you're answering to a lot fewer people, and so your decision making really, you know, if you're doing it for, is in the best interest of what you feel your, your small group of, of shareholders are and, and your employees. Right. Mm-hmm. And a larger business is really no different except you have a different, except now you've got more layers of people that you have to deal with. Right. And as you get bigger and bigger, you've got other, other things to think about. Right. So, so one of the, I, you know, I, I think if you look at, so as, as I've moved now into a more corporate environment, well, first of all, we have a great parent. So, you know, we have a, we have a U.S.-based parent who's very strong financially mm-hmm. that isn't overly corporate. And, you know, Mark Tom, who's the CEO of MyTech, you know, Mark and I speak, you know, six times a year. I mean, and, 
if I email Mark, he sends me a note, you know, he'll, he'll read my email and send me a note back. So it's not like I'm dealing with, you know, some, you know, some, some, some person somewhere that, you know, never, somewhere. never, never just, just to see a corporate address once a year. Yeah. Right. And, and so the culture at, at my tech and part of, part of the things that we're doing at my tech is really, is that they're not that big, even though they're, you know, they're about a $2 billion company. Um, they're not that big. So they really want to be able to um, have an impact on, on the way their businesses that they've acquired or grown operate rather than just, just, just as a holding company. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, obviously I've got a legal department now that I got to run some things by and, you know, HR becomes a little stickier, although HR gets sticky because small companies don't deal with it very well sometimes. And then they get themselves into trouble. Right. True. So, but all of that has sort of come about, but a lot of that, I think John has also come about in, in, you know, I mean, our business right now is more corporate, even, even if it's a small contract, I mean, we, you know, we, we run our, we run a glazing business in the Pacific Northwest. We're, 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 we're still a contract laser here, you know, we'll do major work, but, and it's gotcha. a big part of our business yeah. and it's a, and it's a very successful part of our business. But if we get a contract to do a $150,000 storefront, we're getting the same contract as we're getting to do a $50 million unitized curtain wall. Yeah. So, you know, the idea of, of doing something on a napkin is long gone. Right. So I don't care. I don't care what size you are. You're, 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 you're forced to deal with, just the nature of the business being more formalized, more corporate. Mm-hmm. It's still a relationship business, but um, you know, there's more paperwork within that relationship. That's interesting. So you're saying that I've noticed that as well in the whole the industry as a whole, you know, um, things that we deal with like errors and emissions insurance or yep. professional service agreements, you know, you're not going to get out of certain things. And it used to be like, yeah, yeah, we'll waive that. And now it's like, no, you do this or we're going to have to move on to somebody else. Yeah. In fact, I've never really viewed until until the last couple of years, I never really viewed um, compliance and legal as entry barrier, unique selling proposition. But in many contexts as a, as a professional services company, the compliance and legal and insurances that that's a big deal. That's a, that's a unique selling proposition. Yeah. I mean, I remember looking at a project where they wanted us to replace a light of glass in New York and, you know, the amount of, you know, the insurance and all that. And we're like, we're not, we're not doing it. We'll just go get somebody, go please, please with our blessing, go get somebody else to replace a light of glass. Yeah. Right. It's, it's just not worth it for us. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's, let's, let's deviate here off the path for a minute, but I, I was, interested in a comment you made when you're talking about your career path. Um, maybe it was even before we got on, but um, I'm always interested in advice to young professionals entering the business and workforce. You've got sons and you were talking about, you know, your path was very organic. You, you didn't kind of have it mapped out. Yeah. And some people want to map it out, but do you have any like advice that you tell your sons or millennials? Like, <laughs> That just means I'm getting old now, John. If, asking, if I could ask for advice. Well, let's just say you're a sage, Jeff. Yeah, you're a sage, sage now. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So, uh, you know, it, I go back to some things that, like, you know, are not that original. I think showing up on time, dressed appropriately, is, 
is really important. I like that. Show up on time. Yeah. And, um, and what I did learn though is, is so I really learned through the years though, is, you know, getting prepared is, is pretty important. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, and you can't always be prepared, you know, you know, like, like sometimes you get thrown a curveball, but, but clearly if you know what the meeting's supposed to be about and you, or, you know, you, you have an, you know, you should prepare. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you the amount of times I interview somebody and I say, well, what do you tell me what you know about Benson? And they're like, well, I don't know much. And I'm like, there's an internet out there. You know, it's, I mean, information is so readily available. Yeah. So I think getting prepared and, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, what John Wooden, I think said, uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And the basketball coach from UCLA, right? Yeah. It's a great, it's a great thing. He said that back in the sixties. I mean, you know, why not prepare? You know, I mean, you, you know, so I think preparing, showing up on time and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll use, I'll use, I'll use my mother. Now my mother, my mother used to tell me you can be, you can be mean or you can be nice. Mm-hmm. They Choose. both take the same amount of effort. Nice yeah. is better. That, yeah. You know what? That's good. I, you, you can, you can leave a room or a, or a relationship energy positive or energy negative. Yeah. Pick, yeah. pick the one. Yeah. You know, showing up on time, I think that's a big deal. I think showing up there, there's a saying, um, if you're on time, you're late, you know, right. so be present a couple of minutes before you yeah. logged on a couple of minutes before the meeting. Um, I like that. God bless our mothers for giving us good advice. Right. too. Yeah. Um, do you, you know, it's a relationship business. You said, um, I see you as you know, a relationship builder, do you find one thing or another more or less effective in your business development and client relationship efforts? Like you talked about cold calling on Long Island for two weeks. That's a great lesson for anybody. I love cold. I love cold calling by the way. Okay. But um, like, what do you find? How do you approach your business development uh, effectiveness? Yeah. I mean, it's well, I mean, it's, it's a little bit easier for us because we, we kind of know who to, who to speak to and, you know, having, having the Benson name on a card opens up a lot, a lot of doors because, you know, we, we come with a, a lot of goodwill and a lot of, a lot of pedigree. Um, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, and I've taken enough sales and man, sales management training classes and all that to, to, so, you know, and most people that have, it, it's pretty true, but I do think you have to listen. And I do think you have to try to, I, and I do try to put myself in the other person's shoes as best I can um, and try to find. And, and, and I, and I'm, you know, I mean, if you, it, all the psychology tests that I've taken, you know, have basically told me I'm exactly where I should be. Right? <laughs> I should be, a, I should be in some sort of relationship. Yeah. That's sort of, good. Sort of business. Right. So, <laughs> Um, and so in that respect, I do try to find, you know, politically for, and I won't get political, but, you know, political, political, politically compromised has become a bad word. Right. And I, I can distinctly remember, I'm a history guy, so I can greatly remember the, in learning in, in elementary school about the great compromise of 1846, which was between the South 
in the north and the and the and the states that and, and the states that weren't and compromise in in third grade i would they they taught me history as as, as if compromise was a good thing right mm-hmm. and so you know, and that goes back to deal making, right? Like any good deal is a deal where both parties probably feel either a little happy or a little aggrieved. Right. right? Okay. Um, and every once in a while, you know, you, yeah, you, but so, so to me, I try to find, I try to, I try to, I try to be honest and I try to find a way that both people can leave feeling good about the relationship, whatever, whatever, and whatever, if, whether that's a handshake on a contract or, it's solving a problem that somebody had or, Mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, whatever, whatever interaction that was, you want to, you want to leave it where, you know, I think they want to, that they feel good that, that, that I'm, that we're each, we're we're each getting something out of that relationship, right? We're each leaving with positive energy. I'll I'll use, I'll use your terminology. I like that. That's good. Yeah. Um, You already talked about modularization, in industry controlled environments in terms of assembly and control. But do you see any particular directions or any particular hot topics or problems still needing to be solved? That's a bit of a broad question, but what, what directions are you seeing in the industry from your point of view, from your perch as you work with architects and advanced facade systems? Any, any trends there? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think everybody's looking for ways to deliver a building faster and more effectively, right? And I think that obviously the rub is what, how do people perceive value, you know, right? You know, right? So there's still the, the cost issue there. Um, and I think that's, and, and, you know, before COVID, I mean, we were so red hot, right? There just wasn't enough people. Yeah, absolutely. To be able to. And so COVID has sort of put a, put a little bit of a pause to, to everything. But I mean, my sense is everybody's, you know, um, you know, the idea is we're going to, we're going to be out of this thing, you know, sooner than later now, finally, but, and then what happens, but um, I think, I think that trend to try to find, you know, modular construction, whether it's volumetric modular or flat pack is what, you know, some of the other people call it and how that works I, I really think, and I know that some of the big general contractors, both nationally and, and internationally, are are are, are de- devoting some R and D and some real real effort to that. So I think that being able to enable that um, is is pretty exciting going forward. Mm-hmm. Like I say, I think the idea is good. I think the execution has the execution needs to be improved on. And so I, you know, there's a project in Seattle where they, it's a hotel and they built the entire thing, volumetric module. We were not involved. Mm-hmm. We were involved in fixing all the problems they had. You know? uh, so again, it's a good idea, but it wasn't executed very well. Right? So you think, you think the execution in the industry as a whole has to catch up to the idea? Yeah, it's, I, I believe that, that. And so, and I think that's sort of the, eureka moment here and you know there's very few eureka moments in our business right there we're very incremental right you know extrusions improve a little bit you know we went from yeah hornady bridge to isobar right Right. there you go our glass improves just a little bit every year right yeah there's no there's no like you know big quantum leap you know big you know 
disrupting disruptor things that happen. I, and I think everybody's, I think everybody's so enthralled now with the disruptors, you know, whether it's an Uber um, or something like that, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's just going to be the same sort of incremental improvements and someday yeah. we'll look back and we'll say, well, it took 10 increments, but we're, we're, we're from here to here now. It's pretty far away. It's interesting. I, I was listening to um, a podcast with Elon Musk earlier this week, and he said to the host about this idea to execution, he said, it's really easy to prototype a car. He said, it's, it's pretty easy. Uh-huh. He said, it's a thousand times harder to actually manufacture a car. No, maybe 10,000 times harder. And then he said, right. in a rocket ship, he said, it's a million times harder. He, yeah. he said to go from idea to you know, prototype, no big deal, but to get from prototype. And I think the modular industry, we've done a good job in the curtain wall business, I think, of modularizing things, glazed units and such. But yeah. the whole modularization of construction, yeah, it, that's an interesting It's been 40 concept. years, though. Unitized curtain wall has been about 40 years. Yeah. And even when you go back to the UN building, the UN building tried to tried to prefabricate some things. You know, we, Benson had a great chance to reclad that building. So I mm-hmm. got a great history on it. But they tried it back in the 50s to, to do something. It wasn't, you know, so even going back to the 50s, they were they were thinking about it. Yeah. But if you look at unitized curtain wall, I mean, the concept really didn't grab hold until probably the early, started in the 80s, I would say, and then grabbed hold maybe in the early 90s. Yeah, and early now everybody 90s. everybody can do it, right? And now, so so like like I say, there's no more secret sauce here, guys. Everybody knows how to do it. You yeah. Know, it doesn't take, doesn't take that much to do it, but right. still got to do it well. Right. And so then just, and then now architecture has gotten a lot harder. So now it's just harder to do because the, the architecture is more complicated. Yeah. Not right. to limit the architecture. Like you right. said, talk, yeah. talk to me about COVID for a minute. Um, I was asking you before we got on, um, I know we are working remotely and we don't have a definitive return date. How was, how has how COVID affected your mindset about the present and the future of office space yeah. and your own business, managing your own people, where people are located? Um, the office space question is really interesting, and I've I've, I've I've sat on a few webcasts and things trying to trying to predict that. And I, I think as an industry, we've got so much invested in in uh, convincing everybody that we need office space that I think it, it's it's skewed a little bit to like it's going to be there. It's going to be there. Um, I think they'll I think there'll be office space. I think I think the needs are going to change. How that impacts. The actual product is remains to be seen. Sure, um, I think it's an interesting concept. Um, we're very busy as far as in in bidding and 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 planning. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of pent up, whether it's whether it's capital or whether it's you know builders want to build. You know, yeah, right. This is what they do, so they're going to build. So I I I'm pretty bullish on on the future. Um, COVID from Benson's point of view, you know, we're we're, we're, we're fairly global, John, you know, we've got design centers in Singapore. We've got some backroom engineering in in Vietnam and, and Manila, we've got uh, our supply chain, you know, we've got some people that manage our supply chain that aren't, aren't based here in the U S and others mm-hmm. that, that are we've got offices around the country. Um, I'm really proud of our people. You know, we, we went from not knowing what was going to happen just about a year from now to being completely remote. Mm-hmm. Uh, by March 19th of last year. And, and we have not opened up the office in Portland or we've got formally, we haven't opened up any of the offices yet. Um, we're doing a great job. 
mm-hmm. managing it. Um, that's not, well, put it that way. We're, our people are doing a great job executing it. The management yeah. side has been pretty easy. Yeah. Um, I think everybody's adapted really well though. Right. I mean, thank God for teams and zoom teams is great. Isn't there. It? We never used them now. Now, now we use it all the time. Um, I, I think it's going to change the business. I think what people are realizing a guy like myself who was on a plane quite a bit and felt they needed to be on a plane quite a bit. We can do a lot of these things remotely. We don't have to be in the room to, to talk about um, scope, a scope review. We may want to be in the room to collaborate on certain things, but mm-hmm. we're, we're doing design build design assist completely remotely. It's working pretty well. Um, we've hired, we've hired on board, we've hired onboarded and, 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 and gotten people working and I still haven't met them. You know, that is the fascinating part. We, we talked this about this to my branch leader here, you know, uh, any organization that has multiple offices, somebody's always yeah. remote. You know, we got a guy in Connecticut, right. a guy in Minnesota, right. guys in Minnesota, North Carolina. But uh, I, I said, this, this becomes a strategic advantage if you can do it well. We now don't need people limited to Northeast Ohio or Hartford, Connecticut. Yep. If we can successfully recruit and onboard, we can really have much more flexibility in the whole recruiting pool, can't we? We can. We were, we were a little rigid, especially with um, our engineering group in North America wanting to be in Portland. Yeah. And Portland's a great place to live. This, you know, the summer was a little challenging. And, um, you know, my adopted hometown taking a hard, uh, yeah. taking some hard knocks. Some of it deserved, by the way, since I live in the city. Like, I have some great stories that I'll tell you some other time. Okay. But, um, but we, there's a lot of talent, right? Throughout, mm-hmm. throughout the United States, you know? Um, and, and so if we can um, find talented individuals who maybe don't want to move out to Portland, but are valuable, uh, we now know that we can, that, we, that, that they can be part of our, our team and don't have to, don't have to live in, in the Pacific Northwest necessarily for, yeah. certain, for certain areas of, of our business. So it's, it's, it's going to change our recruitment and it has changed our recruitment significantly. That's good. Yeah. We, we've kind of come to the decision that we prefer someone be attached to an office or a cluster of people in an yeah. area, but it's not a hundred percent necessary. So, right. you know, we got a guy, an engineer that was in Connecticut that moved to Florida and we like him. We're going to hire him. He's going to stay in Florida for now. Well, that's great. He can't come yeah. in the office anyway. So what's the point? I know. I hear you. So hear it's, you. that's, that's really good that you can do that. You know, um, we got to depart from glass and glazing for a minute in construction. Um, one of the, one of the first times I got a little below the surface with you was we started talking about music and uh, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And you talked to me about a Jackson Brown story and then we shared some, some stuff. What, what kind of music? I don't remember taste? how we got on it, but I, I know, I know what the story is. Cause I remember, you know, so uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a teenager in 1978 and you know, uh, running on empty comes out and I, I actually didn't think it was that great of an album and didn't think much of Jackson Brown, but obviously Jackson Brown is, 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 you know, in the, in, obviously, uh, you know, I'm, I'm knowledgeable with him. I mean, and I've heard his, you hear his music, he's in pop culture. And then I think I turned 40 and someone gave me his greatest hits album. And mm-hmm. I remember, I think, and I think this is what we were talking about. That's I it. I remember yeah. listening to it. And I said them, and I think I start. I think I actually may have cried at some point listening to one of the songs. I don't, 
I'm man enough to be able to admit that I cry on a podcast. That's, that's how much I've evolved. I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, but what blows me away to this day, and I've seen Jackson Brown since, uh, is that he was writing those songs when he was in his 20s. So the depth yeah. of his, of his, you know, whatever he, he had, you know, whether it was, you know, in his DNA or whether he, through life experience, the fact that he could write like that and, and in his 20s, and I didn't really get it till I was in my 40s. That's kind of interesting. Blew me away. But that's the magic of music, right? Yeah. And that's, yeah. Is where it can transform you. It can make you think. It can make you laugh. It can make you cry. It can yeah. bring you great joy. It can bring you bring you some sadness on occasion. But it's really such a big part of my life. I'm not a musician. Um, if I have to do it over again, I, I would be. Um, but I listen to music every day. I love I love mm-hmm. all aspects of music. And uh, that's good. I don't know how we got on this subject with you that day, but I remember we, we talked about it. Yeah. yeah. No, but. You know, Jackson Brown wrote these days when yeah. he was 16 years old. Did he really? He was 16 wow. years old. And uh, yeah, if anybody wants to YouTube that, you know, um, also in the, the history of the Eagles, uh, Glenn Fry uh, on that interview tells a great story that when he went out to L.A., Bob Seger said, well, you got to write and you got to go to L.A. Yeah. yeah. So he goes to L.A. and you, maybe you know the story. He, he said Jackson Brown wanted to cut costs. They, they were meeting each other, interfacing it at one of the clubs. And he said, listen, I'll go downstairs if you take the upstairs. And yep. he said every day, Jackson Brown would be at the piano. You know, that's a great doc. I love rock documentaries that are well done. So that, yeah. that one's great. Have you, have you caught the Bee Gees on HBO? Have you caught I, the, that one? I have not. Fascinating. Is it? I need mean, to say the Bee Gees, right? I mean, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. 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 Um, but Good stuff. Um, I was a big Dan Fogelberg fan when I was a teenager and oh, that yeah. whole genre. Well, Irving, Irving Azoff and Dan Fogelberg at University of Illinois, right? And Irving Azoff ends up managing yeah. the Eagles. And I was just watching um, the documentary Muscle Shoals and Norbert Putnam was in that one of, was the bass player in that band and Norbert Putnam produced and played bass for many, many yeah. artists. And that whole genre, Jackson Brown, America, yeah. Eagles. Like, have you seen the Echo Canyon documentary? Have you seen that? Because that touches on that about Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and all those. But guys. the whole that whole sort of that Southern California. Some thing. of that, but I watched yeah. the CSNY one about that. What uh, an okay. what an amazing time! So, I, 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 if you got two minutes, I'll I'll give you a Jackson yep. Brown story. So Jackson Brown has his band, and his his band on off nights. Um, I guess I can swear on the podcast. They, they called themselves Jack shit. Okay. And it was the, it was the <laughs> Jack shit brothers, right? It was, a, it was, and it was the drummer who used to play with Elvis Costello and the imposters, not okay. the impressions and a couple of other guys. So I got wind of this, that these guys were going to play at the city winery, which has now been franchised around the country, but it started on Varick street in New York. So I get, I get wind that these guys are playing and that they may have a special guest. Right. So, I end up getting tickets. It's a, it's about a 70 person venue. Mm-hmm. Wow. And um, I'm sitting there um, having a drink before the show starts. And this guy walks by me down to the bathroom and it's Jackson Brown. Right. Love it. So uh, he goes to the bathroom, he comes back up. And so uh, started the night with, you know, with him playing four of the songs and then they turned it over to the, the Jack Shit Brothers, who allegedly are from Bakersfield, California, and it was, it was, that it was right? a great night of music. 
you know, but yeah. So uh, that's a great story. I, I saw Jackson Brown go to the men's room and come back from the men's room at the city winery on Varick street in New York. Yeah. Everybody's <laughs> got a good story about that, about that kind of stuff Their their music moment or when they bumped into somebody. I remember walking through the airport with, a boss. I was a business intern for TRW now out of business. I was yeah. in the Pittsburgh airport. Um, my boss is like in his late fifties, you know, a suit guy, um, likes classical music. And who do I see walking down the terminal, Rick Ocasek and the cars, the entire uh-huh. band. And I'm like, that's the cars, that's the cars. And he's like, that means nothing to me. And I right. thought, I wish I wasn't with you right now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, Hey, <laughs> Uh, we digress, but it's fun discussion. Um, believe it or not, we're we're a little over an hour. I don't want to put wow. our audience to sleep. Not that you would, I may. But um, it's been a pleasure. Any any parting thoughts? No, John. I really um, I, it was great fun. I, I've uh, enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for for delving into it. I hope I hope I keep somebody's interest for the hour, or at least we keep somebody's interest. You might. I'm not sure if I will. Ah. The hour and, uh, um, you know, it's it's, you know, you ask me what drives me. You know, and ultimately, I like to have fun, and mm-hmm. I've had a lot of fun in this. You know, not every day is as much fun as other days, but I try to yeah. have fun. And in the last hour and twelve minutes was a lot of fun. So thank you. Oh, I'm glad for that. Yeah, for me as well. So. He is Jeff Heyman, Vice President with Benson Industries. I'm John Wheaton, host of the Creating Structure Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are signing off now. Uh, Jeff, have a great day. It's been a pleasure.